This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello, welcome. Today is May the 19th. My name is John Dunn. This is the Best Friends Podcast. And episode 79, back in September of last year, we talked about the staffing crisis. Not an issue for those of us in animal welfare only. Every single industry is struggling to retain staff and to hire new folks. It's been a phenomenon that ultimately became known by the name of the Great Resignation. But now, into 2022, the data is painting a different picture. Yes, people are still leaving jobs. 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in February alone. But the majority of them are not just buying an RV and setting out on a journey of self-discovery. They're staying in the workforce, but they're often switching their field of work. So now it's less known as the Great Resignation. Instead, it's being called the Great Reshuffle. And it's the reasons behind this reshuffle that prompted this week's episode, because it's not really about pay. I mean, well, it is about pay. It's about pay in the same way that it's always been about pay, in that people have to be paid a living wage. But workers today are looking beyond that. They're leaving jobs that in some cases do pay very well, but they're leaving them because of a badly broken culture, or they're just simply looking for a new career something that gives them more purpose, perhaps. Or they're hoping to work for a company that offers more in the way of benefits and perks, even very simple things, such as a predictable schedule. As this reshuffle goes on, companies are doing more and more to compete for workers. One study I saw recently said the vast majority of companies they interviewed said that prospective employees are expecting more generosity from their employers. So naturally, companies are reacting to that. They're offering more, which means those that are not offering more are finding it harder to compete and are often losing good candidates to other companies, not because they didn't want to work there, but they just got a better offer somewhere else. But not every company can compete with every other company. Chances are your shelter or rescue organization, you're not going to be able to create a benefits package on par with Google or Netflix. And regardless of how fulfilling the mission is, it's not enough. So what can you do to offer benefits in this incredibly competitive time in the labor market when you don't have the resources to provide more benefits? Well, we talked with two folks here at Best Friends who are involved in this very thing, figuring out how Best Friends can be a great place to work and in turn then be a place people want to work for. To learn more about ways you can gain an edge and keep your organization staffed and happy, We'll first hear from the Senior Manager of Human Resources, Kim Heenan, and then the Senior Director of People and Culture, Jose Acaño. Uh, Kim, Jose, thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about this. You know, we're in the midst of this great reshuffle. It's the latest term we keep hearing where we've got millions of people in the workforce who are saying, you know what? I I think there's something better, something more fulfilling, something that maybe pays better, offers better benefits, more flexibility. All of these things are now on employers, right? To have to compete more and more as companies try to offer more. But we work in an industry, whether you're a municipal shelter, nonprofit, where budget matters because every dollar we spend here means it can't be spent there. So this episode came about because we were thinking, how can you offer benefits or perks things that are going to create a better work environment and things that maybe aren't going to cost a lot, but they might help create a workplace that people are going to want to be a part of, stay a part of. So 
geez, Kim, I know that's a lot, but uh, where do you start? Yeah, I think first you need to understand the makeup of your workforce, of your organization, and understand kind of um, the different generations that may make up your workforce because different generations will value different things when it comes to benefits. And, you know, a good place to start is to ask your workforce, like, what do they want? What do they value? What would they like to to experience? Um, And I think that's always just a great place to start, you know, to just get that direct feedback from your you know, your team and your workers and your staff and, and really listen and hear what they have to say about benefits. I think, I think most people would understand that you can't give them everything that a larger organization could possibly do, but you know, what would they value? You know, what, what will help them? What will enhance their experience? Um, And I think that that's a good place to always start at the beginning. Well, Kim, you mentioned the difference in ages of the staff, and then in turn, that will mean there are going to be different needs, right? Someone who is maybe getting started in their career, they're going to be valuing training more than someone who may be towards the end of their career. But help me understand how that actually works then when it comes to decision-making. Everywhere I've ever worked has been mixed when it comes to demographics of the staff. So you're always going to have some set of people in the organization who really want something, one thing that a whole bunch of other people don't care about, right? Parents and non-parents probably is the easiest way to, to lay that out. I think that's a challenge regardless of staff size, but certainly something that gets more complex as the size of the organization grows. So, I mean, how do you even begin to wrangle all of that? Yeah, it's not easy. So I think it requires time. So I think you have to invest the time and, you know, kind of how we approached it is we uh, did a, it was kind of a more informal thing, but we did an informal survey of our staff. Like, you know, what would you like to see that maybe we don't offer today? And we just put everything on the table from tuition reimbursement to uh, student loan repayment plans to sabbaticals, uh, just everything you can imagine, um, you know, learning and development, uh, gym memberships, uh, just a wide, just literally like everything that we could think of that somebody mentioned, we put it into, you know, our basket. And then we just went, kind of did some research, kind of um, documented, like how much would these things cost? How many people do we think would be interested or take advantage of these? And we kind of just backed into our offerings, you know, for sabbaticals, that was great, you know, would love to do that. But there, you know, there is just so many complexities around sabbaticals, you know, which employees might you offer it to and which wouldn't be eligible and those kinds of things. And in the end, we decided um, that we weren't going to pursue that. Doesn't mean we won't ever pursue it. It's just at this time, because, you know, you also have budgetary constraints that you're trying to work within. So and really kind of all the things that we were kind of backing into kind of allocating, you know, uh, projections about how much budget that's going to cost us and kind of backing into that and trying to marry that out with what, you know, we thought, um, you know, our fundraising potential would be. So, um, of course, with the help of leadership, for sure. But um, so we, we started big and broad and then just kind of narrowed things down um, after doing more research, looking at uh, usage, utilization potential, and then, you know, what that might cost as far as um, budget. So that's kind of how we approached it. 
for fear of heading down the path of accounting, which is the last place I ever want to go, uh, and I do want to make sure we talk about some specific ideas if we can, but is there a way you look at each benefit, the cost of the benefit, and then calculate the potential benefit? I guess that would be a cost-benefit analysis for benefits, you might say. But I mean, is there is there a calculation or something like that that, that we use to be able to crunch all of this, Jose? I don't think there's like, I'm mean, perhaps an equation exists out there. We didn't because I think to what you were talking about earlier, John, like so much of this is, is circumstantial to your own organization. What are your values? What are your priorities? Who is your workforce? How big is it? Where do they work? What kind of work are they doing? There's all these factors, which is why like it really isn't an equation. Because if there was, it would look like one of those equations you see like on one of those crazy math, like wizardy things and the person looks confused. Like that's, that's what it would look like if we, we were to have one. But I do think like one of the things that I think about, because I really contemplate a lot when we were talking about having this conversation of like, benefits on a budget. And what does that mean? Because there's certainly things you can do, right, as a from a benefit perspective. But the truth of the matter is, we have to really critically evaluate where we're investing in our staff, and where else we're investing. And when we look at fundraising goals, or our growth goals, are we planning budgets and money and fundraising efforts to actually put into staff and benefits? Because you don't hear that a lot. You hear we're fundraising for animals. But if we don't have the staff that is really secure in their job, have meaning in their job, know what to do, know how to like really show up and give their maximum contribution to the mission, if we're not doing the things to invest and take care of them, then we end up paying in overtime because people have to work shifts that the person no longer is there to work. We have to pay in all of the ways that high turnover rates, you pay for it with real money and you pay for it from just like a staff experience, climate, culture, whatever name you want to call it, morale, it comes at a cost. And so I would encourage every organization big and small to think about what are your benefits and what can you do to make some of those basic ones? And then I think a deeper question, and this could be controversial, so I'm going to say it, I often ask people, if you do not have the resources to do business, should you be doing business? If you don't have the resources to properly support and take care of your staff, you, every organization has to decide what that statement means, support and take care of their staff. That's super loaded, super general, and it means something different to every person, but you have to figure that out. If that's not an integral part of your organizational strategy, then you will continue to struggle to hire staff, to maintain staff, to have their loyalty. And so they stay committed with your organization and have happy staff, staff who are happy while doing the work. Happy staff equals productive. And when I say happy, I don't just mean this like Pollyanna, like everyone says yes, and you hear everything you want to hear and you get a gold star for everything. No, like happy staff want to have courageous conversations. They want to be challenged. They want to be work. They want to work. When I say a happy staff, that's someone who's engaged and fulfilled and plugged into the mission. And I just think like, we really got to think about what kind of investments we're going to be allocating towards the staff. And so if you don't have a plan and benefits right now, like that's okay. This isn't a judgment to make you feel bad about yourself, but you should be in deep reflection of what is your fundraising plan? What is your plan to get resources, whether it's fundraising or whether you have to go advocate to your board of supervisors or your city council or whatever that looks like. But the plan to get resources to invest needs to be something because if there is no plan, if the if the end sentiment is, no, we just can't do that and we just need to figure out how to make benefits with nothing, well, you're trying to turn water into fire and that doesn't exist, <laughs> you know? 
And I think sometimes that happens. And so we just have to have very real conversations with ourselves about what we can actually afford to do. And again, like I think of benefits like PTO. So you're already paying for that person's hourly or salary for the year if they're a permanent full-time employee. So by offering PTO, like I remember I was consulting with an organization who's like, we don't offer PTO because we don't have the staffing ability to, when people go on vacation. So like when people are off, they're just off because usually we have to hire temp staff or something. And I was like, well, what about your volunteer program? Could you actually like develop a really targeted volunteer program that is specifically there to help so people can take PTO? Volunteers in shelters build affinity with staff. Like they can really, like our volunteers love the best friend staff. Like they advocate, they appreciate, they do lots of different things for them. Like when I think about best friends in Kanab, there's a group of local volunteers who are very much like staff. You know, they have access to maybe some of the areas that your visiting volunteer doesn't, and they would welcome an opportunity to be able to help and set, set up like, yeah, I'll come in those days so that this person can go and relax and in charge. So like, what are creative solutions to saying, well, is there a volunteer answer to some of these things? I think sometimes we jump to volunteer answers. Leadership loves to jump to volunteer, not just like in general, like where can we get a volunteer? And then usually you'll hear the boots on the ground staff saying like, but that's not a one-to-one exchange. And that message doesn't always get listened to. So be cautious where you're, where you're putting volunteers. Think about it. It's a valuable resource. All of my soapbox to say, if I give you three things, to take away from is really think about where you're investing in your staff and benefits. If that's not a priority, then you should have to be asking yourself a different question about your staff in general. Are you in or- like, how is your organization going to ever thrive without a staffing who is consistently there to take care of the mission and do the work? And I think ultimately get creative. But be really mindful of what you expect when you're getting creative, because there's not always a one for one for exchanging money and resource and a benefit with volunteers and all these other creative ways to try and meet a need. Well, I'm glad you said that, Jose, because I was already planning to say something to that effect at the start of this episode. Uh, I probably still will, although I'll probably tone it down quite a bit, uh, which is as a caveat to this conversation, that nothing we talk about today is a substitute for a living wage. So this is really about the things beyond that. I mean, even really beyond the basics of employee benefits, health insurance, supplemental insurance, 401ks. It's really, you know, what else is out there? Yeah, one thing that, and Kim, I'm going to tee you up for this. It's about TABA. And so one thing that I think is very important that we need in our industry, we, we hear about it all the time. You hear about it talked about as burnout, compassion fatigue. This field is emotionally exhausting. We're working with sentient beings in complex environments with people who are experiencing complex life experiences with our own biases and our own experiences. You mix all that together with a lack of something, it can really create a a really charged environment that does not allow us to be our best selves. And over time, the amount of stories and the amount of time I have felt chipped away in this field has been pretty significant. And so Taba is a mental health resource and it's a platform that we offer to all of our employee best friends. And it's something that I think is really important, mental well-being, well-being in general. And Kim, maybe you could just talk a little bit about what Taba is, how we even came to decide like this is something we need and why we chose Taba um, for our team. 
Yeah. So Tava, as Jose was saying, it's an online mental health platform. So we offer every employee a number of sessions for free every year. Now, a smaller organization maybe can do the free, but so maybe, you know, employees would agree to pay a portion or pay for that service. But it's a great service, I think, especially for all the reasons that Jose just went through, compassion fatigue and and the experience of, you know, saving animal lives, but also coming out of um, the pandemic and just dealing with the amount of stressors that the pandemic caused in people, um, particularly if you think about the caregivers who were caring not only for animals, but all the caregiving that had to happen at home. If You know, they had children, for example, or elderly parents. So all of those levels of stressors were just added tenfold or more during the pandemic. And so it is really, really important to offer mental health support. You know, whether that's you offer a platform or maybe you bring someone into your organization if, you know, if you can't afford to do the platform maybe having, you know, resources available to offer your employees so that they can get mental health support. And, you know, now we're dealing with so many other things as a result of the pandemic, inflation, and all these other things. And I think it's just really important for employees, you know, to have that mental health support. So that service we offer employees here is Tava Health, T-A-V-A. We'll put a link in the show notes area of your podcast player. I mean, it's a good reminder there that benefits don't always have to be something that's, you know, no cost or non-existent, right? Employees are willing in the right circumstances for the right things to share costs in this way. Uh, and and maybe, you know, behavioral health services, this isn't something we'd want to do this with. If you can offer them for free, absolutely do that. But at the same time, offering virtual behavioral health services at a reduced rate is better than not at all. Yeah. You know, maybe... Um employees would be willing to, to pay a portion of the cost. You know, that's where we go back to, you know, asking your staff what's really important to them. What do they feel like they need? You know, if that's something that, you know, all of your staff would benefit from, then maybe you ask them, you know, would you be willing to pay a portion of the cost? So I think it's really talking to your staff and having those kind of open discussions, you know, what would they be willing to do or not or not do or pay or not pay for certain benefits. This benefits game, Jose, of, you know, kind of switching benefits out with the old in with the new, you know, there may be benefits uh, here at Best Friends that fewer that few people use, right? Maybe it's not the best use of of budget to to offer this thing that, you know, again, people aren't taking advantage of. So you have to take that away. And even if you're replacing something with something similar, you know, folks may feel frustrated that something they were using, they valued is now gone. And so that that internal change management part of this, that was something that I was thinking uh, about ahead of this chat today and just how difficult it must be and how important it must be to make sure that the organization's management is cognizant of that and how much losing any benefit, even if you're gaining other benefits, but how the shifts in benefits can really impact people. It's not easy because you want to do the right thing for every single individual human being in our organization. And there's times where that's not always possible, you know, to do that specific thing. It made me think of paid family leave. And so with paid family medical leave, 
there's a range of percentage that it covers. Some companies, like a, a very standard thing, you'll see like, with, especially with state plans, like in California, there's a state plan for paid family medical leave. It's about a little north of 66%, 66 to 67%. And so when we were looking at what should the best friend's percentage be, we started having these conversations. And so we were saying, well, what would it look like to do 100% coverage? And then there were some really wise voices in the call who said, what if this ends up being a benefit that is super utilized? We've never had it. So we don't have any utilization data. And what if at the end, we actually couldn't sustainably afford it? And then we need to cut back the next year to 90 90 or lower. And so the person said, you can always increase something or a benefit. And that's a lot easier to communicate. And so that's one of the reasons why we're starting where we're starting. There's a strategy to build. But to your point, when when you have to pull back a benefit, I think it really is about having data and transparency with your staff. So for instance, we just brought a new benefit called Truist. It's about financial um, wellness. And it goes beyond just like helping you like set up your bank accounts. What I love about it is it actually asks you, like, what are your values? Like, what are your values? And make sure you're spending your money in alignment with your values and things like that. So it's super cool. But if in a year or two, we see that no one's using it. And let's say it was a benefit that we were investing, spending money on, even if we're not spending money, we're just offering it. There is human capital of maintaining that program, maintaining their relationship. Like there is money that is being spent to just have the benefit. So we were to decide this is underutilized. We should not have it. We should have that conversation with the staff. We should make it really clear. Hey, we're reevaluating our benefits. Maybe make reevaluating your benefits a yearly, every other year process. So people can expect like, hey, sometimes this will mean taking away, but it's never, it should always be done with such clarity, such transparency. Even in a situation, you're an organization, you financially aren't doing as well anymore. So you actually, that's one of the reasons. But if you're giving financial updates with your team throughout the year, like our CFO does at Best Friends, a quarterly financial update, you'll kind of know what's to come. And so you can understand that's why we have to do what we have to do. Talk about the ultimate employee benefit, right? A healthy, positive, supportive work environment and culture where employees receive open, transparent communication. I mean, when you look at what people are really valuing in the workforce. And the, the beautiful thing is this, there's data on this, like Google it, you can find Gallup research, research out of MIT, research out of Harvard Business Review. And the things that people really value in the workplace is culture, climate, what is your experience? And that word is very loaded. It means a lot of things to people. But in general, it's things like I trust my supervisor. I feel supported by my supervisor. I believe in the direction of the organization. The organization lives by the values on that website. I can learn and grow. We do things efficiently and well. I'm in meetings. They're a good use of my time. Like those are the things that make up the culture. And so I always tell folks like benefits matter, but they do not, they're not showing as trending as high as your cultural experience and also your ability to learn and grow and maneuver within an organization. That's especially important for Gen Z and millennials, but also all of us who aren't Gen Z or millennials necessarily. And so I think that that's a really good point, John. And there's a lot of work and intention that has to go in creating a culture that serves you that you're not at the mercy of, so to speak. And in animal welfare, because it's an emotionally charged ecosystem, without an intentional culture strategy, 
you probably are underneath the foot of your culture. And it's looking like high turnover rate, high rates of burnout, disconnections, departments fighting with each other, leadership not on the same page, leadership and staff not on the same page, like you name it, you're seeing all of those things. And we oftentimes try and solve the symptom of it as opposed to going to the deep, deep root cause of like, this culture is a culmination of the way this organization and the people in it who are in the most senior positions to make decisions think and feel things. And so, yes, culture matters. Culture should be at every single conversation, whether we're talking about benefits, whether we're talking about life-saving, whether we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you name it. On this, any topic you have on the podcast, I would say there's probably a culture component because culture is your how. And so we should always, always hold space. So thanks for asking that, John. Well, this one is for either or both of you. Again, in thinking about this topic as a staff member of Best Friends over the years, you know, what benefits have we had available to us? And I thought about some of the corporate partnerships we've had, companies that have worked with us on a, you know, a national adoption promotion or sponsored specific events. And that some of them have then very kindly offered our staff a discount code for the for their product, for example. And I just thought, man, what a great potential avenue for folks to think about. A Humane Society has a partnership with, say, the local movie chain, right, to do adoption events. And we think about those partnerships in a program life-saving way. And I'm not suggesting we forego that, but is there a way to consider how those businesses, those partnerships might also involve offering something to your staff? They're engaged with the mission enough to want to do the adoption event with you, right? So, you know, again, even if it's not free, maybe something where there's a discount and the organization picks up part of it and the staff, either way, partnerships that benefit the hardworking staff. I have to think that in today's climate, you know, if you're asking a corporate partner for that type of uh, assistance for your staff, you're probably going to get a pretty good response. Yeah. From, and I mean, I think someone from like the corporate partnership team probably has the best answer for this, but talking to them, because there, there is an intersection, like you said, in this, I don't think this is necessarily like, is there a benefit from this partnership that could translate to something with the staff? I don't know that that's a driver in the partnerships. I think the driver is like, is this mission aligned? Does this help with like our key mission in terms of the, the kinds of partnerships we're making? But when I talk to Candy, who heads up that area, she absolutely is always thinking about, is there something we can do? And she does that one because of the leader that she is. She's a very people oriented person. So she's always has in the back of her mind, like, what can we do for the staff? And there have been some cool opportunities when it's like that. And so it's not uncommon for her email to be in mine and Kim's inboxing, like, hey, I'm working with in in pet insurance company and there might be an angle or there might be an opportunity rather angle sounds more like <laughs> something that it's not. It really is more of an opportunity. Like, is there an opportunity where we can find a partnership where there's a benefit for our st- that our staff can tap into. And those conversations absolutely are part of it. And Kim can expand a little bit on that. Oh, I was just going to mention the pet insurance. That's really been something that we had in our basket and on the table, um, but we took out because corporate partnerships was working on a program. So we took that out of our, quote, benefits back basket, so to speak. That's kind of still being worked through and that hasn't quite materialized yet. Well, one of my favorite new benefits we're exploring at Best Friends, uh, we've done it once and I'm not sure if we're close to formalizing it yet or ever, but it was the meeting-free week. Not even something that you might think of as a benefit in that sense, 
but it sure seemed to me like everyone I talked to thought it was a benefit. We all felt it as a benefit and it costs us nothing. And this came out of, as you said, Kim, asking the staff, what's working, what's not? Getting that evergreen response that I'm guessing everybody everywhere hears, which is we have too many meetings. So again, not a best friends only issue, but best friend said, you know what, let's give it a try. What if we just didn't do meetings for a week? So is that something we consider to be a benefit and do employees see it as such? Because if we don't, I kind of think we should. Yeah, I think, I don't think that we actually have thought of it as a benefit per se. You know, we're not, for example, talking to prospective employees saying, hey, you know, we also offer meeting weeks, meeting free weeks. So, so I don't think of it as a benefit on that level. But I do think it extends to the points that Jose was making about culture, like, and listening to your staff. So that uh, was very much expressed through the survey. And I think um, the feedback was taken to heart and thought was giving, like, what can we do? Because this is such a concern for so many employees. Like, what can we do to help with this? And out of that kind of brainstorming came this idea. So... But I think it's great. I think it's part of our culture. Like we're willing, we listen, we hear what our employees are saying, and we take meaningful action based off what we're here, what we hear from them. So, and I think that's the great thing about our culture here at Best Friends. So, and it doesn't mean we always get it right, you know. And I think part of what I love about our culture too, it's everything you said, Kim, and it's that we try things. Like we aren't afraid to be like, let's try this and let's see if this works. But one of the things you said, John, that made me think is, you know, has HR shifted in kind of the way we think about things? And so in regards to that as a benefit, Kim's correct, not so much. But HR, we have shifted a lot in the last two years. I'll be um, presenting at our The Best Friends Conference, and the, the working session title is Putting the Humanity Back in Human Resources. And it's interesting because when Julie first called me and said, would you be interested in managing all of like the human resource functions? And I said, are you sure? <laughs> me? Like, I don't have a formalized HR background. I have had some challenging relationships in my previous sheltering life with human resources in terms of I've always found it to be a, a department full of barriers and like, here's the policy. And it wasn't, it, I never felt seen or taken care of, it felt always transactional to me. And like the principal's office, like there really was no trust. It was really contentious. So I was very gun shy (laughs) initially, but then I thought, what a cool opportunity to actually change things because human resources is a department that affects every human being throughout their entire time at an organization. And so one of the first things was getting our kind of leadership team aligned. So Kim at the time was really focused on recruitment. And so we brought, I brought Kim and expanded her role to oversee all of the operations with this different vision of like, we're going to do things differently. We, it's not about transactionality, pointing to complex policies that people can't understand. We are going to talk to people. We're going to build relationships with folks. We are going to become incredibly easy to access and relate to. And what's really neat is you put people who are people oriented in roles, you set the tone. The beautiful, the beautiful thing is the entire HR team was like, yep, we're here. We're ready for it. And there's only a few folks who are no longer with us and many because they're doing awesome things with their life. And so I think we got the right philosophy on board and the right people who bought into it. 
And we should continue to start to see the effects of that on the organization. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're not going to continue to learn and grow and step in it sometimes. But it does mean that there has been a very conscious effort on shifting in HR and putting more humanity and more of that people into it. And so it's an HR that's driven by culture, you know, not an HR that's driven by black and white policies. Well, yeah, I mean, we might not think of meeting free days as an employee perk in in that it makes sense to pitch to prospective employees. But I actually do think it does, because I think it speaks in a big way to the way your employer reacts to the work environment, what's happening day to day. Yeah. If, if that was on a bullet list of things at Best Friends, of reasons to work for Best Friends, I feel like I would see that bullet and say, oh man, meeting free week. Oh, at some point somebody said, we have too many meetings. The organization listened and actually reacted to it. So, you know, as we think about what benefits are, offering benefits that don't cost a lot, I just think that really speaks to the way an employer hears concerns, values employees, reacts to those concerns. So absolutely, I do think it's a benefit. Yeah, no, there's things, there's like, these are things like their benefits, their perks, right? Like we have, if you were to visit the Best Friends location in Kanab, you know, where our headquarters is, if you haven't gone, listeners, you should go. It's incredible. <laughs> but we have a um, cafeteria there, you know, in the Angels Village. And one of the things we did last year was we made it free for all of our staff who are there. And it's really neat because we have seen an increase in staff going and having lunch. And that that means people are stopping what they're doing when they know this is a group of folks who are like, I don't have time to stop. And they're stopping to go and do something very basic, which is rest and feed themselves and maybe relate to a colleague and build connections and just talk about their weekend or work through, you know, the things that build trust and build relationships. And so it is really cool. So those are the things that are like their perks, but their benefits, because I do see how you're looking at it. It is something that could make someone really know that like, oh, this is a real cool place to work. Like that might be the deciding factor, because right now the power is in, in the employee employee. Like if we think of it as a housing market, like the employees have choice. They're the owners of the home employers are the ones like coming in with like all cash offers, no closed contingencies in 15 days. Right. And you're seeing that in our sector, like in the private sector for veterinarians, like you see some of the big corporations who can like give you a 10, 20, $30,000 sign on bonus, you know, part of what's really neat is every organization and every company can look at who are you, where are you located and what's the, what's the scale and scope of your organization and how do you relate to this? Because we are best friends. We're big, but we can't do 20 $30,000 sign-on bonuses for veterinarians. Like that's not something that is we're, we're real capable of doing, but we can do other things just like a mid-sized shelter can do certain things, just like a rural shelter can do certain things, you know, sometimes, cause you mentioned culture really matters. The smaller you are means it might be easier to convene people and connect and to build trust. Mo people, mo problems sometimes, you know? So bigger teams means more opinions and lived experiences at the table that you're trying to balance. There is something really powerful about being small, <laughs> a small team, you know? Some of the most effective teams can build so much trust because they're small. I also challenge, not challenge, but ask people to think, what are the things that you think are your weaknesses, but could they be your strengths? Is there a strength within that weakness? Or is there a strength or an opportunity in the con of the reasons why you don't have a benefit in the reason you can't do something because 
what you're doing is why you're getting what you have. So something's got to shift. And the something that's got to shift has to start in your brain because it's what shifts that you, you have to shift your mental model to start shifting the way you show up in your behaviors, which eventually show up in your policies. And so I think for, for folks who listen, everyone has a role that they can play. It's a leadership role or it's just a contributing role. Employee recognition is another one that came up as I was looking around uh, ahead of this uh, chat today. And I, I think if you look at some of the research, a, a book I read many years ago called Peak by a guy called Chip Conley, uh, it talked about employee engagement, employee happiness, uh, and how they applied Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the workplace. And, you know, once someone has the basic needs met, right, fair wage benefits, then it's things like recognition that can be a difference maker in the employee experience and how happy and connected somebody is at work. And I know there are platforms today that uh, can tie recognition to perks, you know, that enable that sort of approach. Do we look at employee recognition in that way, Kim? Yeah, so we had a employee recognition platform in our basket of things that we were looking at. Um, we did uh, not to move forward with that, at least for now. It's not off the table. It's just um, kind of a deferred thing. So, but definitely, I mean, we do recognize people, you know, for service awards, they get a nice jacket. So we have a very robust program there. They receive um, great rec recognition at 5, 10, 15, 20 years of service. Um, so we do have that already in place, and that's been in place for a while. But yeah, I think you cannot underestimate recognition and appreciation of your employees. It can be, it doesn't even have to cost money. It can just be, thank you. <laughs> so we have um, what we call kudos cards that anyone in the organization can submit a kudos card to appreciate someone in the organization and receive that recognition. And that really doesn't cost us anything. And as a manager, I personally always try to, to thank my employees and my staff for everything that they do. Um, so if they accomplish a big project, if I see them stepping up and doing something that takes some work off my plate, I make sure to say thank you. So I think just something as simple as a thank you, recognizing what they're doing, uh, when they're doing it, I think can go a long way. And that's free. You know, that doesn't cost anybody anything. So just a, a simple thank you. So a few things I want to say about this topic is when we think of the things that create the climate of an organization, the culture, the morale of an organization, we work with a company called Energage, and they have these data scientists who have really figured out because of billions with a B of data points, here are the things that studying workforces that matter, 15 things. And within those 15 things, there is a few things that matter more than the other things. And one of those things is appreciation. Feeling appreciated at work is one of the key things to be engaged and to give a maximum contribution to stay loyal and dedicated and to keep being able to show up every day and ready to work. And the biggest ways to appreciate is in very personal ways. So I always tell people, take time and really build relationships with your team. When you really get to know people, and you can see them, it makes moments when you acknowledge them much more deeper. And so like handwritten notes, genuine, authentic thank yous, you know, are important. I think like because we're best friends and we are an organization who is lucky and privileged enough to be able to upscale a lot of the things we want to do for our staffs. I do think like there are other, there's like Award Co. and other companies that they can, that you can partner with to do um, 
I was seeing this thing on my Instagram the other day and it's this company that's like, are you one of those employees and you're tired of like choosing mugs because of appreciation? What about choosing skydiving or a cooking class? And it's this, it's these really cool experience things. So you're seeing that. And so maybe something for us to consider, but what I want to drive home and bring home is when I started to do research and talk to folks about what are some of the reasons that prevent people from saying thank you, from stopping and doing that. And every person in a lot of things, it's, I'm just so busy that I forget. Like I'm so busy jumping from one meeting to the next, from a podcast to this thing, to whatever it is that like, I think it, but I don't ever have the time to go and do something with it. That's never going to change. The urgency is always going to be there. We're always going to be busy. What we need to have is new ways of working and deciding what things are we going to slow down and pay more attention to because they matter And also because if we don't, it's going to be to the demise of the staff and the organization and the mission at its center, you know? So even myself, I make on my notes, I have this paper next to this computer of everything I need to do. And whenever I think of like, say thank you, those are things that I never used to write down. I used to think like, oh yeah, I'll remember to go back to Kim and Teams her. Thank you for doing a great job on the podcast today. But if I don't physically write it down, I guarantee you I won't do it. And so like, write it down, remind yourself, there's a reason you're not doing it, figure out what that is and start to to do those things because it is such a bridge. Appreciation is a bridge to trust. And it's a bridge to a lot of other things of building high resilient teams who can handle change and conflict. Who on this podcast doesn't need that? Who on that podcast doesn't need to be that, right? And so, and also, Appreciating others feels really damn good. And anytime I'm feeling low, I actually have an exercise where I will put 30 minutes on my calendar to just send thank you emails to people. I'm telling you, I got goosebumps thinking about it. I always feel better because there's something transformative about being grateful and showing your gratitude to people. And like Kim said, that's super free. And it actually, we have infinite banks of where we can be grateful. And so perhaps that is the place to end the podcast in gratitude the ultimate the, the ultimate benefit right we'll have to do more on this soon because uh, you know it is clear to me that creating great places to work where people want to come and work and want to stay it really is much more than just you know here's some benefits that you can offer this is what you'll get by working here there's it's much deeper than that right it really is about creating a culture because without a good culture you're probably not even going to be having these conversations. So we'll have to do more about this in the future. But I really appreciate both of you coming on the podcast and uh, getting us started on this topic. Thanks. Gracias, amigo. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Clonch, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>